Welcome to CT Church. This message was recorded during our Sunday service. We hope you enjoy this presentation. We're going to continue the series that we started last week. We're looking once again, uh, Bones of the Bible. Uh, we know that there is, the, the title of this sermon this morning is A Bare Bones Minister. There's a lot of talk, we established this last week, a lot of talk in the Old Testament and the New Testament about bones. And so we're taking a closer look at a few of these Bible stories that talk about bones and seeing how they still, a couple thousand years later, even more than that in this instance this morning, still apply to our lives today. So I want to begin by reading this passage of Scripture from 2 Kings 13th chapter, 14 through 25. It covers the very, very last days of the great prophet Elisha. It, it says this, Now Elisha was suffering from the illness from which he died. There's a whole other sermon right there in that verse, but I, I'll leave it at that. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows, and he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared, you will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha said, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. Elisha died and was buried. Now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders, so they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Hazael, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. Hazael, king of Aram, died, and Ben-Hadad, his son, succeeded him as king. Then Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, recaptured from Ben-Hadad, son of Hazael, the towns he had taken in battle from his father Jehoaz. Three times Jehoash defeated him, and so he recovered the Israelite towns. There is a ton of information in these 10, 11 verses here this morning. And here's the main point. Once again, I'm going to just start off giving you the main point, but you know, I would appreciate it if you stuck around here, you know, all the rest of it. But the main point is this. The way that we live our lives is going to have long-lasting effects after we're gone, good or bad. Works both ways. How many of you would like for your life to leave a legacy? Let me see your hand. You want your life to leave a legacy. 
I have got some great news for some people today. And that is, your life is going to leave a legacy. And I've got some bad news for some people, and that is this. Your life is going to leave a legacy. It works both ways. But here is a piece of really, really important information. We, ourselves, we have full control over the legacy that our life is going to lead. You have complete control. Nobody can add to your legacy. Nobody can take away from your legacy. It all revolves around you. You have complete control. Therefore, we need to live our lives so that our life continues to minister even after our death. Because our legacy, which is really our ministry, is going to last a lot longer than we will. Amen? Pastor Brothers, I, I used to, he used to say something that I found amusing at the time. He would say, live your life so the preacher doesn't have to lie at your funeral. And I found that amusing, right up to the point I became in charge of holding the funerals. And then it wasn't quite so funny. I'll tell you, there's nothing more uh, that'll rattle you like having to hold a funeral for somebody that was just meaner than a junkyard dog and just, you know, just a rattlesnake in disguise. You can't, you know, you can't really say that at the funeral because the family tends to frown on that sort of thing. <laughs> so that, what Pastor Brothers used to say, it just came alive in my life. So please, I beg you, I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, Live your life so I don't have to lie at your funeral. I'll be held accountable for that, right? Help me out here. Work with me. So Elisha, in this story, he's about 80 years old. And he is dying from some lingering disease. This is a very different effort, uh, exit from planet Earth than his mentor, Elijah, isn't it? I mean, he was caught up into heaven chariot of flames. He never even experienced a physical death here on earth. So this is, uh, even though he asked for the double portion of blessing, his exit from planet earth is a whole lot different, right? He's dying from some lingering disease. We don't know what it was, but we know it's a lot different exit from earth. But the interesting thing, there doesn't seem to be any bitterness here with Elisha. He just keeps himself ready to minister whenever he's able. And that says a lot about his character. But what I think is quite interesting is that this is actually the first mention of Elisha in the Bible in a, over a 40-year span. Bible scholars who are smarter than me did the research, and they have determined that the last reference to Elisha is at 2 Kings 9.1, which is 43 years earlier. There's been no mention of one of the greatest prophets to ever walk the planet. That's, that's a little over half of his life. Don't you think that's kind of interesting? It makes you wonder what in the world was going on with Elisha all of this time that the Bible says nothing about him. Well, after many, many years of research costing hundreds of thousands of dollars, they're now pretty sure he was a used camel salesman in Jerusalem. You know, sometimes I say things just to see if you're paying attention, and it really didn't seem like a lot of you were, so I'm joking there. 
You know, most likely during these 43 years, he's just day in and day out, just faithfully serving God as best he can. There are no great miracles or supernatural feats any way recorded in the Bible concerning Elisha in this entire 43-year period. It's just a time of routine, faithful service. That's the bulk of Elisha's life and ministry. And I think it still speaks to us that really that should be the bulk of our life and ministry. That's probably what it's going to come down to. We, we have a tendency to define a great ministry as one that's just constantly filled with all kinds of miracles, supernatural events that take place. But I, I really think the truth is a lot closer to this. The bulk of our spiritual walk in this Christian journey is probably going to be just uh, routine, faithful service, just day in and day out, with a few mir miraculous and incredible events that you know, are scattered along the way just to keep our faith built up. But I really think it's this, uh, just this routine life of faithfulness that's going to help us lead the greatest testimony and the greatest legacy of our life. How many people, even including us preachers, great preachers of the Word that had these unbelievable, huge ministries have left timeless, that could have left a timeless legacy but because of just a few bad decisions, it all came crashing down. You know, people take just a little vacation from their life of faithfulness, and overnight, with just a couple of bad choices, everything can come crashing down. They can turn a great legacy into a humiliating legacy, and we've seen it played out over the last 30 years, even within our own denomination. Huge ministries because things within that ministry became more important than just serving God. I've always liked this illustration. I'm, I've always assumed it to be a true story, but I like the point that it makes. In 1908, who was around in 1908? Well, then you can't prove if this is true or not. So I'll just say this is absolutely a true story. It's supposed to be. There was an old, an elderly missionary couple. They had been working and doing ministry in the jungles of Africa for most of their adult life. They're now returning by ship to New York to retire, but they were scared. They had no pension, as most ministers and missionaries back then, they didn't have pensions. They, they had bad health, as we all get as we get older. They felt a little defeated. They were discouraged and as I said, they were afraid for what tomorrow held. And they discovered they were booked on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt, who was returning from Africa on a big game hunt, which he did quite often. No one paid any attention to them, but boy, there was tons of fanfare with the president's entourage, people on that ship just doing whatever they can to catch a few glimpses of the president, you know. And as the ship moved across the, uh, across the ocean, the missionary said to his wife, he said, you know, honey, something is just wrong here. So why, have, why is it we've given all of our lives faithfully serving God day in and day out in Africa all of these years and nobody cares a thing about us? Here comes this man home from a little hunting trip in Africa. Oh, everybody's all excited. 
His wife said, well, dear, you shouldn't feel that way. And he said, I can't help it. It just doesn't feel right. And who's been there before? You know, you're feeling your emotions are all jacked up over something that's happened in your life. And somebody says, well, you know, you shouldn't feel that way. And you go, oh, <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. I wish you could have told me that a couple hours ago. You'd have saved me a lot of grief because I've been all stressed out and, you know, feeling worked up. If you'd have told me that, everything would have been fine. You know, even sometimes we know we shouldn't be feeling a certain way, but it's, boy, it's hard to defeat that, isn't it? And so this is where he was at. The ship docks in New York. There's a big band, you know, we're ready to greet the president, the mayor, dignitaries. The papers had been full about the president's return. So, man, the docks are just packed with people waiting to see the president. And they get off the ship. Nobody says one word. Nobody knows who they are. Nobody cares who they are. They get off the ship. They find a cheap apartment on the east side of New York. The next day, they went out just hoping to find some kind of menial jobs to help them put food on the table. And that night, the man came home, and he was just broken. He said, I, I cannot take this. God is not fair. His wife said, you need to go in the bedroom and just spend some time with God. And so he said, okay, he goes into the bedroom, comes out about an hour later, and his countenance is just completely changed. She said, what happened in there? He said, honey, the Lord, he just settled it with me. I told him I was bitter, I was angry that the president receives all his homecoming, but we, we return home and nobody cares that we're home. He said, that's when it seemed as though I felt the Lord put his hand on my shoulder. And the Lord said six words. He says, that's because you're not home yet. There's a sermon in there. We get all worked up sometimes as Christians. We think our life should flow so freely and without, you know, unfortunate event. But God tells us in his word, that's not going to happen. We get all worked up and we forget that, you know what, as long as we stay faithful, as long as we keep plugging away day by day, ultimate victory is going to be ours. And the reward is going to be beyond what we can describe. If we just keep going. The greatest testimony of our lives is not going to be the occasional miracle that might catch a few people's attention. It's going to be the consistent, routine, faithful obedience to God that we live and we demonstrate day in and day out. That's what it's going to be. In this story that we're reading, I also find it interesting that when King Jehoash becomes concerned about the safety of his kingdom, the first person he runs to is Elisha, not one of his military leaders. And he had a huge military. He runs to Elisha. That's when he says, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, which what he is saying to Elisha is that Elisha is more important than all of his horses and chariots. So when confronted with the enemy, the king is more interested in the help of an old dying man than he is his entire army. Because I think he's probably worried about what's going to happen to Israel without the influence that he has seen through Elisha's life. And that was kind of a step of faith, at least, on the king's part, going to Elisha, placing his trust in Elisha's hands. And so Elisha assures him by placing his hands over the king's hands. And Elisha says, God's hand is upon you, King Jehoash, and you will defeat the Arams. 
So Elisha instructs him to open the window. So he opens the window. Says, shoot an arrow. So he shoots an arrow. And by doing so, God is going to give them victory. But then Elisha got to the point where I think he decided, I need to test the king's faith. He's doing everything I tell him to do. Let's see what kind of faith he has of his own. Elisha knew it was very, very important that the king needed his own faith. And that's a whole other sermon. A lot of sermons in this few verses. And that sermon would be, no one is ever going to make it to heaven on someone else's faith. Husbands, your wife might be next to an angel herself, incredible Christian woman, and just involved in all sorts of great things, and she's going to heaven, but she can't get you in. And vice versa. It happens both ways. It's just in, in my 30-some years of ministry, I more often than not see it men allowing their wife to be the spiritual leader of the home, and I don't know if they're just kind of banking on her faith getting him in, but that's not how it's going to work, Right? We all understand that, so we'll move on. So the king strikes the ground just three times. And Elisha is angry over this, what he considers to be a very moderate display of faith. He he's kind of scolds him, right? He said, well, you should have hit it you know, five or six times because Elisha knew that because the king's faith was moderate that the results were going to be moderate. They were going to win three victories against the Arameans, but it was really going to require five or six to completely destroy the enemy. And boy, does this still speak into our lives a few thousand years later. In other words, the king, he fought the enemy, but he stopped short of defeating him. That's a whole another sermon there. We'll, we'll back up and get to these at some point, but the sermon would be about how, how many times in our lives we know there's junk. We know we're fighting the enemy in our life. And, you know, we're willing to, to fight back. We push back and we push back, but we don't completely destroy it because we think, eh, I might want to go back to that at some point. So I'll just hang on to just a little bit. I'll beat it back in my life, but I'm not going to completely defeat it. That's a whole sermon, right? We've all been there in our life. So this was one of the great failures in the life of King Jehoash because it meant there's going to be a mediocre life for Israel under his rule. As Christians, we have to fully give our lives to God, right? Not just a part. Not when it's just convenient. Not when we're in trouble. Not when we're just wanting something. We have to be determined to live our life for God and be determined that we cannot fail. We have to have that determination in our life. It has to be there. We cannot fail. No matter what storm in life we face, we cannot fail. No matter how difficult times get, we cannot fail, right? It's, I've used this illustration before, but I love it because I was all into astronauts when I was a kid. We need to have Gene Kranz determination. How many of you will raise your hands? I don't have a clue who that is. Don't know who Gene Kranz is. You have not watched Apollo 13 with Tom Hanks? Gene Kranz was mission control director for several of the Apollo missions, including Apollo 13. He's the guy in the control room who always put a little white vest on during mission control time. And so... Apollo 13, he's mission control director. April 11th, 1970, Apollo 13 blasts off of the moon. Two and a half days into the mission, 
astronaut Jack Swigert, he flips a switch to stir the cryotanks, whatever that means. I'm a preacher, not a scientist. But we do know that two wires short out in the oxygen tank, and there's this huge explosion that literally blows half of the service module out into space. And here these guys are floating through space at several thousand miles an hour. They just lost half their ship. These guys, all of a sudden, have more trouble than a balloon factory full of porcupines. See, I wrote that myself. I thought it was going to be a little bit funnier. I'll just scratch that off. Come up with something else. They had no power. They had no computer to navigate. They're freezing to death because now no way to heat the module. They don't even know if they have heat shields left when they re-enter that they're not just going to burn to a crisp. But really that's not a big concern because at the present they're about to die from carbon monoxide poisoning. They're probably never even going to make it to re-entry. These guys are in a world of trouble and it was very highly doubtful that any of these men were ever coming back to earth and every guy in that mission control room was thinking that same thing except one guy. Who was it? Who was it? That is so terrible. Come on, who was it? That's a little better. I'm still not that impressed. But anyway, it was Gene Krantz, man. He calls all of the uh, engineers, all of the mission control engineers, he calls them all into a conference room, and here's what he tells them. He says, men, failure is not an option. You remember in this story? Failure is not an option. Man, I like that kind of attitude, don't you? If we would apply that attitude to our Christian walk, our church alone could turn the world upside down. Jesus did it with 12 guys. We've got like 400 people. If we all had, if we all had that attitude, failure is not an option. What a, that would be a game changer, wouldn't it? Failure is not an option. And I also believe, this is a little side note, we need to apply that attitude to our marriages, right? When you're standing at that marriage altar saying those vows, you need to have that embedded into your head. Failure is not an option. Instead of the way some marriages go down this year, uh, in, this, in this society. I've always said this. I've always said, you know, nothing says I commit my life to you forever like a prenuptial agreement. That's another sermon. But I'm going to throw this plug in since we're right here. Speaking of Apollo missions and marriages, next year during our Celebrate America Week, our speaker, it's very much looking like our speaker, whom I've been in contact with, Charlie Duke is going to be here next year. I can tell you're all impressed. Nobody here even knows who Charlie Duke is, right? Got a few people. Charlie Duke. Let me tell you who Charlie Duke is. He was the youngest and the last human being to step foot on the moon, Apollo 16. I think he's going to be able to be here. Now, we will probably receive another special offering because we have to pay all of his travel expenses to get here. He and his wife live way over in New Braunfels. <laughs> and we got to get him over here. Gas is going up. How many of you knew we had a world-famous astronaut living 20 miles from us? The guy is 83 years old, and he is spry as a jackrabbit. It's unbelievable. 
He was not always a Christian. As a matter of fact, he and his wife, their ministry revolves around marriage ministry. He, like almost every astronaut that ever flew in a NASA mission, was headed for divorce. Almost all the astronauts were divorced, if you do some research. Because when you were a NASA astronaut, you were not actually married to your wife. You were married to NASA. You were married to the mission. And almost every one of those astronauts ended up in divorce. And that's where Charlie Duke and his wife were headed. And wouldn't you know it, they got radically saved. And their marriage was healed. And they now travel the planet. And he shares his experience of NASA and walking on the moon, but they really zero in on how God is the one thing we need to make all of our marriages successful. Anyway, it's going to be a great time, so mark your calendars. It's only a year away. Charlie Duke going to be here. But it brings us to the question, how about our lives? Are our lives a testimony to the day-by-day-by-day service to God that we exemplify? Or is our service and our faithfulness a bit mediocre? Do we turn to God every day to guide us and direct us? Or is it mostly just when we have a problem? Or when we want something? Here's another telling thought. How do your mom and dads, how do your children view your walk with God? Do they see it as wholehearted day in and day out? Or do they see it, well, I see it on Sunday, uh, but Monday through Saturday, it's a little sketchy. Let me tell you, you're leaving a legacy that you're not going to like. But you're leaving a legacy. Hear this today, mom and dads, and you've heard me say this before. The most important thing as parents, the most important thing we can ever do for our children is to love God and to love each other. That is going to leave a legacy in their life. Make Sunday, commit to making Sunday a day of worship. Not sports, not camping, not boating, not sleeping. And I'll be the first to say those are all great things. Not motorcycling, great things. Now, I'm not saying that you can't take some vacation time during the year and do some of these things. I'm saying as the rule, not the exception. Make Sunday a day of worship and commit to it. Leave that legacy to your kids. Determine in your heart when it comes to bringing your family to church, failure is not an option. You know, I've heard a lot of people say to me, Pastor Doug, here's my problem. I work almost every Saturday. Sunday is the only day I have to spend with my family, and, and we know how that important that is, so we, that's why we don't, aren't able to make it to church. Listen, I know all about that. For over 10 years, Janet and myself, we had a job that required us to work almost every Saturday. But I'm telling you, I, can, I think I could count on one hand, other than vacation, how many Sundays we ever missed with our kids in church during those 10 years. And I wouldn't trade those Sundays for anything. Now, am I telling you this just to make you know, myself look better or more spiritual than you? Yes, I am. <laughs> That's exactly why I'm doing it. I'm a little better than you. I'm kidding. Those of you who know me well, you know I'm kidding. (laughs) But I do my best. 
I tell you that, though, because as, uh, all joking aside, I would share that with you because as your pastor, I want you to know I, I will never ask you to do something that I wouldn't be willing to do myself or have not been willing to do. I think that's important in pastoring a church, don't you? And also, I would share that with you because Janet and I have seen firsthand and experienced the blessings, the blessings from God within our family for making those priorities in our life. We've experienced. So let's get back to our story. Elisha, he dies. Not a lot of fanfare in the Bible, right? There's one verse. Elisha died and was buried. Hey, don't knock yourself out recording, uh, you know, about my, I'm one of the greatest prophets in the Bible, you know. Uh, that's all I get. Didn't make any difference to him because his life wasn't about recognition, right? It says, Elisha died and was buried. And so, although Aram is pushed back, a new enemy pops up, and we read about it in verse 20. It says, Now bands of Moabites would invade the land every spring. You know, some um, I have a warped sense of humor. Maybe, many of you may not know this. But there are certain passages of Scripture, stories I read in the Bible that just strike me funny. This is one of those verses. It strikes me funny. The first time I read it, I think I laughed out loud. Because I'm thinking, you know, some people in the world, they like to do spring cleaning in the spring. Some people like to plant flowers in the spring. Some people maybe clean out their garage in the spring. Maybe fertilize their lawn in the spring. Not the Moabites. They enjoyed invading Israel in the spring. Every spring. It's like, you know... The guys walk out of their house early spring. They, ah, smell that fresh, clean air. Doesn't it just want to make you kill, maim, and pillage, you know? <laughs> I am ready for this. I love spring. Let's go. I find it funny. But here's the deal. By not living completely for God, Israel had lost a lot of God's blessings. Israel, as we know, they lived from one frustration to the next. Nothing ever went right for very long, and it was because they would never fully turn to God. They would fight the enemy, but they would never completely destroy it. And in our lives, the same thing, same cycles repeat over and over. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed in human nature. Satan, so easily blinds us when we don't look for look to Jesus as our source. I mean, the Israelites, they, they apparently were never able to connect their poor quality of life with their lack of faith. The neurons didn't strike somehow. The constant battles with the enemy, this was never God trying to punish them, as some people might interpret. God loved his chosen people, right? And he was just trying to send them a message, but he just never could get them to listen. Which leads me to another illustration that I like. I, this is supposedly a true story too. A woman visiting the Holy Land came upon this flock of sheep on a hillside. And let me tell you, that could have happened yesterday because year before last, when I was in Israel, to this day, you look in the hill, it's really hilly around there. And there'll be flocks of sheep with a shepherd up there that looks like he might have been around in biblical times. You know, he's got a bunch of rags and a thing over his head, and it's, it hasn't changed much. 
in all of these thousands of years. And she came upon this, and her attention was drawn to this one sheep who was uh, laying there, couldn't stand up, and it was just kind of bleeding in pain. <laughs> you didn't know I possessed these talents, did you? So, doesn't that sound just like a sheep in pain? <laughs> I have others, but we'll go on. And so she looks at the shepherd. She sees that the sheep, its leg is injured. She looks at the shepherd and says, what happened? The shepherd says, I had to break its leg myself. And she is like set back, you know. The shepherd says, it was the only way I could keep this sheep from straying off to unsafe places. He said, here's one thing I've learned. Once I nurse a sheep back to health, it'll follow me the rest of its days. That's a sermon in there. We'll get to it later. But sometimes, man, aren't we just like sheep? We are just like sheep. That's how we look to God. He looks down, he sees it, that's what we look like. We stray into dangerous territory until God is sometimes forced to send some pain and sorrow into our life just to get us to wake up and pay attention and get back on course. I mean, God was, here he is, he's about to speak again through the life of Elisha, this man of God. Even though he's been long dead, his testimony is about to display power. We just read the story. We got these guys, Israelite guys, they're carrying this dude's body for some kind of funeral ceremony, and they're, you know, they're marching along. They come over a hill, and what do they see? A band of Moabite raiders. Why are they there? It's spring. It's what they do in the spring. They could have maybe planned the funeral a little better, but sometimes you have no choice. And so what do they do? The first, they, they panic, and they just toss this body in the first cave they see, and it just so happens to be, this cave happens to be the tomb of Elisha. And they throw this dead guy in there. His body simply touches the bones of Elisha, and there's still so much power in his legacy that this body just springs, it comes to life, and jumps up on his feet. That's unbelievable, Right? Unfortunately, when he saw that he was in this dark, scary cave touching a skeleton, it scared him to death and he keeled over dead. That's not in the Bible. Uh, I think it was in the Dead Sea Scrolls or something. Somewhere I read that. Okay, maybe I made that up. But you have to admit, that would have been ironically humorous to me. Not to many people, but we'll go on. I will say this. I bet it didn't take that dude long to get out of that cave. <laughs> I'll bet he moved right out of there. But the moral of this little story is this. It's mind-boggling to me that even though he was dead, Elisha's legacy still had incredible power. Why is that? It was because of how he lived his life day in and day out. I mean, you can imagine the look on those other guys' faces when they encountered this power of Elisha, who at this point has become a bare-bones minister. How many of you are wondering, how's he going to work this title into this sermon? Well, you see right there. There you go, you know, bare-bones minister. The bones of Elisha brings a man back to life, bare-bones minister. Pretty good, don't you think? Okay, thank you. I think this was a message to God 
from God to Israel and to us today. And the message is this. You can be spiritually dead, and all it takes is just one little contact with God to bring you back to life again. You can be spiritually dead. You just reach out, you touch God just a little bit, and He will spring you back to life. Still holds true to all of us today. Since God couldn't find someone to preach this message of life to this rebellious people, He used the bones of Elisha to speak for Him. You know, today, that's how it ought to be in our life. People that come in contact with us should experience life. You know, people out there, they've got all sorts of problems today. They're looking for answers. We have the answer. And people that come in contact with us should experience life. Way back in Genesis, God had made this commitment to Abraham concerning his descendants, if you recall. And even though they were a very rebellious people, God would never completely destroy them. But he would put them through the fire to get them to listen from time to time, right? Just as he does in our lives. But this was never a display of meanness. It was always a display of love. When God put on the heat, or when he puts on the heat in our lives, it's never to destroy us, it's always to save us. Sometimes we misinterpret it, don't we? You know, one of the most valuable things on the face of planet Earth are diamonds. Anyway, that's what the De Beers family would like us all to believe, so I go with it. You don't get that? Google it. But here's the deal with diamonds. Without a lot of pressure and heat, a diamond is just a lump of coal, right? Worthless. We're all kind of diamonds in the rough, aren't we? And sometimes God has to put the heat on, so to speak, just to get our attention and to turn us into something valuable instead of allowing us to just make bad choice after bad choice and just ruin ourselves. In His mercy, sometimes he puts the heat on because he loves us. He's trying to keep us back on course. Man, if we can just keep our minds wrapped around the truth that our lives are always a lot easier and always a lot less complicated when we give them completely over to him instead of trying to hang on to a little bit for ourselves. And then we get ourselves into all kinds of jams, don't we? We've all done it. How many of you have already figured out that life gets really messy when you decide to keep a little bit for yourself? Been there, done that. According to his faith, King Jehoash, he got exactly what he asked for, right? He got three victories. But the enemy was just never fully defeated. King Jehoash's legacy, it would have been a lot different had he fully, fully trusted and had faith in God. So the question today is, what is your legacy going to be? What's your legacy going to be? I would challenge all of us, we need to leave a legacy that lives on in a positive way. You know, we can't, you can't judge the impact that your faithful walk is having by, by any one particular moment along this journey. Because you can 
base it all on one bad moment and your, your view gets a lot distorted or you can evaluate it all in one great moment and your view gets distorted. It's a lifelong journey of a consistency and faithfulness. You know, it may seem that we walk faithfully for years, but we just don't see a lot out of the ordinary happen. That's okay. We've got to remain faithful even if we don't see immediate, miraculous, impressive results. It's all about the day in, day out, faithful walk. Keep plugging. Keep hanging on. Even when you feel like letting go, nope, you hang on. Elisha's legacy lived on way past his death, and so can all of ours if we just keep on keeping on, so to speak. Elisha's life had demonstrated the presence of God even after he was long dead. I mean, just having contact with his bones brought the dead to life again, and that speaks into our life that people, just by coming in contact to us as Christians, should experience or feel some life that there is lacking in their life. And we know what that life is, and we just need to share it with them, right? My prayer today is that your life is going to so exemplify God's presence that people that just come in contact with you, man, they feel a difference. They feel life. Amen? You have been listening to CT Church in San Antonio, Texas. This recording was presented in the context of our Sunday service. For more information, please visit us at ctagsa.com, connect with us on Facebook, or call us at 210-657-3578.